Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madvi Romani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? Well, it's summer in Berlin. Things are reopening. Everyone's going out again. You can see it on everyone's Instagrams. They're out in the sun. Stuff is happening. And on Instagram, I saw this post by Mimi Zhu, and we'll link to it in our newsletter. And I'm just going to read the whole thing about FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. What lies behind FOMO is the fear of being forgotten. As we re-enter collective spaces with joy and confusion, the energy we've held onto for the past year seems to be bursting forth from our vessels. FOMO triggers my internalized self-disposability, and my insecure ego thinks that I lack relevance if I'm not perpetually seen, active, or socializing. Unlearning these ideas means taking the time to remember yourself, even when you are not in attendance. Your inherent worth is not measured by your visibility. Do not miss out on your very own miracle. And yeah, that just got me thinking about FOMO. So FOMO stands for the fear of missing out. The phenomenon was first identified in 1996 by marketing strategist Dr. Dan Herman, who was conducting research and published the first academic paper on the topic in 2000 in the Journal of Brand Management. The actual term itself was coined by author Patrick J. McGuinness and popularized in a 2004 op-ed in Harbus, the magazine of Harvard Business School. FOMO is essentially defined as the apprehension that one is either not in the know or missing out on information, events, experiences, or life decisions that can make one's life better. And FOMO is a kind of interesting thing because specifically now with this pandemic, I feel like it went away a little bit, and now it's back in full force. But is it different? Has it changed? There's also JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, there was a great article in The New Yorker about the dread of getting dressed, because the author was obviously kind of fine in her own space, not doing anything, because... They weren't missing out on anything, nothing was happening, but they also weren't getting dressed. And now, to go out and present yourself to the world, she ties this act to what Virginia Woolf called frock consciousness, because how you dress, according to Woolf, and I guess she was obviously right, Virginia Woolf was right about a lot of things, serve as markers of identity, tell people a lot about your class, your occupation, all of this kind of stuff. So it's like a parallel language, or otherwise part of this big body of things called supplemental texts. So in other words, everywhere, like your favorite television shows, what you wear, what fonts you use, all kind of say something about you. And it's the same with clothes, right? The author was kind of resisting this obligation to get dressed and go out because you're kind of presenting yourself in a different language and... She was never very good anyway at knowing the cues. Like, what if you wear this particular skirt or whatever? What are people interpreting about you and all this kind of stuff? And we live in a world now where everything you do, from the way you dress to all your data and everything, is fastened to your identity and then packaged and sold. 
So the author was just reflecting on the fact that this hasn't happened for a year. And now do we want to go out and really do that again? And I think it's the same as the other quote was saying. It's like, we've had a whole year of just self-preservation in a way and expressing ourselves to ourselves. And obviously we have to go out and do things, but there's a fine balance, right, between self-preservation and self-expression. And that's at the center of what Virginia Woolf calls frock consciousness. Another interesting thing that's kind of pointed out about fashion here is that after calamities, when we think about the roaring 20s or the Second World War, normally fashion comes back in a way to reassert conservative gender roles. So for example, after the Second World War, lavish skirts and narrow waistlines were visually forcing American women back into the home. And it was the same in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War, where ruffles were used and things like that. So that's also something to, I think, be aware of when we're stepping back out again. Especially clothes are super fascinating because there was this whole thing about like, oh, during the pandemic, the only place you could go was the grocery store. And there was, we all missed everything so much. You were dressing up nicely to go to the grocery store, using this as an opportunity to put on any clothes at the beginning. And then, I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. It slowly deteriorated into bras. And so, you know, we, at the beginning, there was this longing for something and then it petered out. And I feel like it's coming back because, yeah, as you were saying, we haven't gone or done anything in ages. And now that more and more people are vaccinated, it's like, like there's almost this fear of saying no to anything. I find the term fear of missing out sort of interesting in and itself because I guess maybe it is a fear of missing out. But it's more so, there's something of like, oh, I have to make up for lost time. Not necessarily in the sense of, I'm scared I'm going to miss a party or I'm going to miss a gathering. But there is a sense of like, oh, what if the Delta variant continues to spread and we have to go back into lockdown? There is some sort of a fear of, I like appreciate having a dinner party now. And what if that's going to be taken away from us again very, very soon? So I feel like maybe the definition of FOMO is, changing a bit because I guess it's it's not the fear of missing out the actual event it's the fear of missing the event in the future because you don't really know what you've got till it's gone right there's a really fascinating article in the guardian about longing and she talks about how our brains release more dopamine planning a vacation than taking it so she writes neuroscience suggests that our brains are wired to crave what we don't have Dopamine, known as the happy hormone, is released not when we get what we want, but when we anticipate getting it. Even thinking about touch you crave can trigger the release of dopamine in the reward system. Once we get what we want, the dopamine fades, and so we crave more. With anticipation being a key stage in happiness, and depression rates in the U.S. tripling last year, it's no wonder so many people find themselves longing. Dr. Kent Barrage, professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Michigan, says powerful emotional experiences and stress, such as those that might ensue after being locked inside for months on end due to a deadly worldwide virus, exasperate the hyperreactivity of dopamine system. In other words, the experiences increase our appetite for want, food, sex, material, object, drugs, as a way of escaping from the discomfort of reality. Our want brain circuits have been getting a workout this year, and repetition builds habits. Binging on the crown or scrolling through Zillow listings for hours every night might provide us with a temporary escape, but these habits produce drug-like dopamine highs that elicit more longing and lead to depression and increased anxiety. 
The high is so strong that almost half of Zillow users surveyed this year said they'd rather search for a dream home than have sex. And the same neuronal pathways are responsible for addiction to both heroin and binge watching. We're all longing for something. We've spent a year longing for like, oh, I wish I could do this. Oh, I can't wait until that restaurant opens again. So we've been so high on this. And so now that it's here, like FOMO, the fear of missing all of these things has got us on this high of craving it, right? Now that we're getting it, we're going to crave more. There's a critic called Lauren Berland. She's a cultural critic. And she actually argued that the American dream, for example, keeps people in a constant state of longing. She terms this thing cruel optimism, when something you desire is actually an obstacle in your own flourishing. She basically talks about the same thing, like a Sisyphean pursuit of the good life, and it's an amalgam of fantasy and futility that we process as experience before we rationalize it in thoughts. And these feelings are the body's response to the world as something you're always catching up to. And she uses this kind of framework to understand really big manifestations. So for example, like the Occupy movement can be seen as a response to the cruel optimism of capitalism and the pent-up outrage of citizens realizing that they've been chasing nothing more than a dream. The last vacation I went on before the pandemic, I was sitting at Frankfurt Airport because I caught a connecting flight from Berlin to Frankfurt and I was flying to the US to visit my brother and I was on the phone with my mom and I was telling her how much I didn't want to go. Not because I didn't want to visit my brother, but I remember telling her that I wanted to walk up to the ticket desk and ask them, when's the next flight to Berlin? Because every aspect of vacation is so fun. The planning, booking it, the anticipation. And then it's like, as soon as it happens, I want to cancel. I'm already so stressed out about every aspect of it. So the best part of it is this kind of fantasy dream state when you are like imagining what it could be like and it's never as good as when it actually happens. Yeah, because you don't have the jet lag, the waiting at the airport. There's never any... Your baggage isn't going to get lost. You're not going to miss your train. You're going to sleep perfectly. Like, everything is perfect because it's not real. But the reality is terrible. There's, in the same Guardian article, there's a super fascinating part where she's talking to a man who's an outdoor enthusiast. He says he spent about $4,500 dollars online in the first three months of the pandemic, having turned to impulse buying for satisfaction when he couldn't take part in his usual pastimes. He says, I'd look at camping gadgets and sports equipment I knew I couldn't wear anytime soon, but it would give me a chance to daydream about life returning to some kind of normal. To feel happy, many of us turn to anticipation without the guaranteed payoff. People invest time and money surfing travel sites, even booking trips, not knowing if they'll be able to take them. And that's me. And also what he's doing is this anticipation loop, because shopping is one of those things that keeps you in this state, getting dopamine, but you're not really contributing to your long-term happiness by doing that. You're just getting these quick hits of dopamine. And I think that's what is happening now, right? It's like, I'm going to go to a picnic that I don't really want to go to, but because I haven't gone to them in a while, and when I go there, I'm like, oh my god, people, and it gives me dopamine, and I feel really great. But then, as soon as it's over, you're like, I don't really like those people. I didn't really want to go. But I was so 
deprived of this and the anticipation of like finally seeing people was so high that yeah you go yeah the author of the article on the dread of getting dressed is something that really reflects what you're saying and she says there was something about the intentionality of pandemic socializing the care with which we decided when and how to be present for one another that transformed each relationship into a flame to be tended. I want to hold on to the power of deciding when to disclose and how much so that the act of connection carries the meaning it deserves. This is different from hiding forever. But this does mean that, yeah, maybe we don't want to go back to how we were before where we were just doing everything all the time and retain a kind of mindfulness what we're making available and how we're exposing ourselves. Although I guess it's going to be difficult now because we've got used to this kind of state of longing as well and it's hard. We'll very quickly figure out that what we've been anticipating all this time isn't going to satisfy us, right? We've been anticipating all of these social interactions and parties, but we haven't socialized in a year, so it's going to feel weird and uncomfortable and it's going to take some getting used to. And I feel like there's also... You know, like the higher you go, the lower you can fall. If we've built up all of these expectations around social interactions so much, they're inevitably going to let us down because, yeah, we've been longing for them for a year. We've been missing them for a year. But, like, people aren't that great. I don't have too much FOMO. Yeah? No. I really like staying at home. You have JOMO, the joy of missing out. Yeah, I don't care. If I see this really big party going on, Unless I'm feeling really social, I'm just happy being alone. Like, I don't want to be there for anything. When I was younger, I used to have a lot more FOMO because I used to think that, I mean, I maybe to some extent still think this, I need everyone to like me. And if you weren't invited to something, it's because someone didn't like you. But then someone once said, or I read something, they said that, like, why are you so concerned with whether or not they like you? Start being concerned with whether or not you like them. I feel like that was kind of a turning point because it was like, I don't really want to go to that party or that picnic. I don't like those people or I don't find them interesting. So maybe there is something with age that comes, you know, when you transition from FOMO to JOMO a little bit or knowing yourself better or just realizing that like quality interactions are more important than quantity of interactions. I'm very happy that this conversation has seems to have hit the mainstream because I think we've mentioned before, if you're an introvert, it's always all these articles about, oh, you're an introvert, how to become more extroverted. But there's never an article on like how extroverts can become more introverted, you know, so like it feels like this is a the big switch. A turning point. Hopefully. Because like obviously FOMO is has been heightened through social media. Yes, you would know about the party that you missed out on last Friday, talking to people on Monday in the office, but... Now, with social media, you can watch what you're missing in real time. Yeah, and the trick is not to use social media then, because if you're at home scrolling on your social media, you're probably not enjoying your time alone, I think. I mean, sometimes scrolling on social media is great, but whereas if you're just like really into a book or something by yourself, then you're really just content. Like I said, you just have this feeling that you wouldn't want to be there anyway in the middle of a big, loud picnic. It's funny that we're talking about picnics now. Yeah, there's also just a thing of remembering that everything on social media is not as it appears. So I like to think of like, oh, how often have we posted something on Instagram when really we were miserable and wanted to go home? 
And then you can't help but think like, oh, if I saw the same thing, though, like someone else would be posting the same picture, I'd be like, oh, she's having a great time when, and you know, you feel like you're missing out when in reality, everyone's miserable. I feel like I know this and we talk about this enough. And then I met a friend of mine recently and she had just gone to Morocco and I saw her pictures on Instagram. So I asked her about it because I, when I was looking at the pictures, I was like, oh, that's amazing. She's taking this opportunity to go to Marrakesh. I love Marrakesh. I had such a great time when I went there years ago. And then I asked her about it and she was like, oh, it was post-COVID desperate hell there. It really wasn't a very good trip, but you didn't get that from the images at all. So yeah, I fell for that too. Yeah, we're all kind of products of FOMO in that way, right? Because we're all, obviously we're all always performing. We're always all performing, not just in daily life, but on social media as well. So on that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Number one, practice the joy of missing out. And just turn off all your social media and read a book, play the piano, make some art for a prolonged amount of time on your own. And you might find that this habit becomes very joyful. Thing two, when you are scrolling through Instagram, because we all do it, even if we intend not to, when you see all the posts of all the parties and the picnics and the dinners out, remember still just social media, probably was not as great as it appears, we're all performing. And number three, hold on to those intentional interactions that you had when you chose specifically who you wanted to spend time with during the lockdown. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed you can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com you can also listen and subscribe via youtube for news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources references and other geeky inspiration subscribe to our newsletter you can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.